We have an announcement. We have a really massive announcement that we are so very excited to bring for the very first time to this live audience. We have partnered with a typical brewery and barrel works. Which it would be weird if we announced that we were partnering with somebody else. At it would be bizarre. It would be. And in that partnership, Midwest Murder is getting its very own beer. Beer. We have our own beer. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Uh, Thank thanks, you. Thanks to the amazing, amazing people here at Atypical. We get to uh, but, kind of bring this dream to to fruition. But there, but there's wait, something even better about more. it. So the beer itself will be a raspberry lemon sour. It's going to release at our first outdoor show at Atypical on June first. It's called Buried Alive. And the absolute best part of this beer, and, and my and goodness, really, I'm getting and, emotional. And really the, the, the driving the, force behind it. The genesis right? of the reason why we wanted to do this is Don wanted to utilize our platform and our presence in the podcast community in North Dakota, as well as our partnerships with Atypical Brewery and Barrel Works to find a way to give back. Give back to our community and give back to organizations that matter and make a difference in our community. So whenever you drink a pint... Or buy a can of Buried, Buried Alive, Alive here at Atypical, a portion of those proceeds will benefit the DVCC here in Minot. So the Domestic Violence Crisis Center. Yep. So. I know. It's I know. Sweet. It's so cool, man. We hope to be able to raise a bunch of money for mm-hmm. them. So yeah. let's drink it out. Buried Alive, June 1st, our first outdoor show here at Atypical. We're going to be back, at, back there on the stage. There will be no damn snow. And it's going to be awesome. We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We are here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Dang, Joan Alanto. Don Palumbo, we're here. This means business. This means this this is business. It's good to see you again. It's nice to see you as well. We're, we're, on, four, we, on 420, no less. Yes. Um, yeah. we, uh, we do our, we, we've been doing our live events. We haven't been in the studio very often, and so I don't, I don't get my Jonah time, which means we have more arguments because then we're just talking over text. Yeah, and you then, lose the inflection, you lose the yeah. meaning of it. Apparently we need to see each other more. So a huge thanks to everyone who takes a little moment out of their busy life to review our podcast, the comments and feedback and support. It goes a long way to help us get recognized. And frankly, a lot of times it's uh, it's a little inspirational and motivational for us to continue doing what we do. And Don, I'm, I'm a little curious. What are people saying about Midwest murder? They're saying some, some things. It's cool. Authentic Midwest personalities from JPEDX2. I should just start spelling those out because then I, I'm, it's like trying to figure out a license plate. You know, personalized license plate, and it's like it's 
yeah. Anyway, five stars. Cool. Five stars across the board. I've seen Don and Jonah live a few times and will continue to do so. They are so personable, genuine, and their storytelling is even more riveting when you couple it with the live show experience. I come back for more every time. Plus, they don't make us do math. We would never. We would <laughs> never, never. Not on this podcast. No, actually, we might ask you to help us, but yeah. And they speak in hours versus miles. Hell yeah, we do when talking about travel. <laughs> True Midwesterners. Hashtag more hot dish, le- hot dish, less murder. I want, I want that to be a chat someday. More hot dish, less murder. You know? Not now, but love to hear that. <laughs> That'd be weird. I feel like that would be disruptive. Yeah. <laughs> and then also ND listens. See, that one was easy. I got that ND one. ND listens. Yes. One, one star. One. Reinforcing trauma. This I typically read these ahead of time, so I know what I'm ready for. I, so I was, I was surprised there. This podcast glorifies criminals and re-victimizes people who've experienced trauma. Midwest murder is for those who support profiting off of someone's gross misfortune. May we never experience what the people in these episodes experience. And if we do, may we never be remembered with such indecency and dishonor. Yikes. So someone does not like true crime whatsoever. Right. That's, so, that's a hatred for, I think, the entire genre and that was taken out that, on that us. Actually, that hurts my heart because I sound like a broken record when when I talk about victims and, and because starting out with this thing, that was, I, I probably said that to you 1500 times was, you know, we have to respect the victims in, in this case, any case. Right. And so I feel like maybe, maybe Andy listens only listen to, to one. And if I'm making a joke, if I'm sounding like an asshole making a joke, it's never about the victim. It is, uh, it's probably because someone was super dumb and, you know, tried to light his house and then himself on fire. And I mean, like, that's, that's why I'm, I'm going to make fun of that guy. I'm not going to make fun of the, the victim. However, that being said, thank you for uh, thank you for the review. Yeah, hey, thanks it's, for taking the time. It it, it puts it's, me in check. We and, understand it's not yeah. for everybody, and I believe that when you get stuff like that, it just makes you reflect a little bit. It yeah. makes you stronger, and it it gives you something to kind of you know, soundboard off. And yeah, uh, for sure. I I just think that again, this just sounds like they don't like true crime, and we're sorry. And I I appreciate. I think to counterpoint, a lot of our reviews have recognized how how much honor and respect we do have for victims, and so I I take solace in that. I hope so. Yeah. I, that would that would hurt my heart. So, yeah. so today in Midwest Murder, folks, we're traveling back to 2010. So not very long ago. What happened in 2010? Maybe a little more than some of us remember. On January 12th, a 7.0 magnitude earthquake devastated Haiti, killing more than 230,000 people and destroying the nation's infrastructure. Time Magazine announces Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg is its 2010 Person of the Year. Without Mark Zuckerberg, we couldn't say you got zucked. No, you could Thank you we to, couldn't. Daily, to Snacks Daily. Apple released the first iPad. The Lost series finale aired and disappointed literally everyone. Showrunner Damon, I didn't know this, but showrunner Damon Lindelof actually left Twitter because of the fan rage over the Lost series finale. So that's well, a bummer. Maybe it shouldn't have been so shit. He's probably back by now, but right? Tiger Woods delivered a televised apology over his infidelity and sex addiction. Catherine Bigelow in 2010 became the first woman to win the Oscar for Best Director. In 2010. 2010. And she directed The Hurt Locker, for those that don't remember. Really cool movie. I guess we women should have just been better. (laughs) Gotta do better. The Chicago... Thank thank you. That got really awkward there when nobody (laughs) laughed. I was like, wait. That's a joke. Yeah, it was funny. We all got to do better, okay? Sometimes my, my kids mess something up and like, well, have you tried doing better? Yeah. You know, I, when, when, they somebody, love it. when somebody's like, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, don't be sorry. Just be better. <laughs> yeah. Don's yeah. brutal. I am. <laughs> yeah. In 2010, the Chicago Blackhawks 
They won their first Stanley Cup since 1961. So if you're a Blackhawks fan, 2010, pretty cool year. The first Instagram posts were made in 2010 by co-developers Mike Krieger and Kevin Systrom in San Francisco. The service launched publicly on October 6th. And, and then they got and then they got zucked. And now eventually, and then, yeah. And, then, and then, now Instagram yeah. is Facebook. Now Facebook. That's called getting zucked. Dumb. Julian Assange leaks footage of a 2007 airstrike in Iraq titled Collateral Murder on the website WikiLeaks. It feels like 2010 was like yesterday. There's it, no way that it was 12 years ago. And right? I refuse to believe it. But I should because I have to. The global drug trafficking market has an estimated value of over $500 billion. With its half a trillion dollar revenue, Global drug trafficking is the second leading illicit market, second only to counterfeiting, which is estimated at over $1 trillion. And there is no country on earth who buys more illicit substances than the United States of America. I feel like that's true. If, no, if it's, it's, if it's, it's illegal, true. sign us up. Sign us up. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then if it's legal and we like it, let's make it illegal so then it's, it's even better. Yeah. Better for someone. Yeah. In spite of strict policies and being the leader in the failed war on drugs, the land of the free is not just home to the world's largest prison population. It's also home to lots and lots of people who love to do drugs. In fact, Americans spend approximately $150 billion a year on illegal drugs. To add a little context to those massive dollar amounts, here's an excerpt from Ernesto Zedillo, former president of Mexico and currently the director of the Yale Center for the Study of Globalization. Quote, The U.S. is the world's largest consumer of illegal drugs. It makes up just 5% of the global population, yet according to most estimates, accounts for over 25% of global demand for illicit drugs. That was, I feel like that was a lot. So it makes up just 5%. So we make up 5% 5 of the population population on the planet. We consume 25% of all illicit drugs. It feels a little- Go us! Feels a little unbalanced. Okay. Due to the covert nature of these transactions, it's incredibly difficult to apply an exact dollar amount to the illicit drug market, and researchers openly admit they've likely underestimated its true value. And frankly, most people who buy illegal drugs like cocaine, heroin, methamphetamines, marijuana, will do so without much issue, as long as they don't get caught. It's very transactional and mostly harmless. Like any industry... There are customers, retail sales, wholesale distribution, upper management, regional suppliers, producers. The list goes on. And it's full of job titles that are typical of lawful markets. I don't, I don't, I don't think that a lot of times lawful market markets have uh, enforcers. And, well, you know, it, and there are like some that. titles on the darker side of the drug world you oh, won't find I, I didn't even say at that. Starbucks, <laughs> Walmart, or Best Buy. Titles like... Enforcer, watchdog, or executioner. I disagree. I think that Starbucks has an executioner. (laughs) What kind of Starbucks are you going to? (laughs) The fun one. If you've watched TV series such as 
Breaking Bad, The Wire, Narcos, or even Weeds, something that sticks out often beyond the romanticized Hollywood portrayal of being embroiled in the illegal drug world is that drug trafficking organizations can be highly complex businesses with systematic operations and policies that have been keenly developed over decades. While there may not be an employee handbook, there are without question plenty of employees. According to the Chicago Police Department Gang Intelligence Unit, approximately 75 street gangs are active in Chicago with an estimated membership of 100,000. Violent crime associated with street gangs, while declining in some major urban areas, is increasing in suburbia. Approximately 44% of all murder investigations in the Chicago area are gang-related. In Chicago, these gangs have embedded themselves, the major airports, access to an abundance of interstates, and some of the largest and busiest shipping centers and train stations. Chicago is the perfect place for organized crime to distribute their product throughout the Midwest, East Coast, and even into Canada. Perhaps another important lesson we can take away from Hollywood's portrayal of the drug world is that it's filled with people who are living a double life. Some of the most vicious and prominent dealers are also model employees in legitimate businesses. They're loving fathers, even friendly neighborhood faces. Well, just because you're doing illegal stuff doesn't mean you're a shitbag. I mean, like, and I'm serious. Yeah. I know that sounds funny, but I'm, I'm serious. Like it, you can you can still be you know selling drugs and love your children. Right. So right. when when there are statistics like that, it just it always drives me crazy. Like, I think oh, on some okay. level, there's there's a, a little bit of a you know, it is there's like a dehumanization, if you will, sometimes of particular dealers. And sure, it's yeah. it's oftentimes these people are otherwise very regular. You just would never know it. In November 2009, Angelica Fuller resided at 2356 South Christiana Avenue in Chicago with Andres Boutron along with their baby daughter and Fuller's son. Boutron, who was currently employed at the Willy Wonka candy factory, didn't make much money. He was also on parole for prior drug-related charges. Sometime that month, when Boutron and Fuller were shopping at Target, they met up with a few of Boutron's old friends, Arturo Ibarra and Raul Segura. Boutron did time in federal prison with Ibarra. Fuller was certain... This wasn't a random encounter, and she became suspicious when the two men offered Boutron a place in their construction business. Andres had never worked construction a day in his life. The men eyed her. Clearly, they wanted to have a conversation outside of her presence. Go to the baby section and get things for our daughter, Boutron ordered Fuller. Angelica Fuller knew what was up. She was afraid for Boutron, and she refused to leave his side. That ended the conversation abruptly. Abara gave Boutron his phone number as the groups parted ways. On the ride home, Andres Boutron broke the news to Fuller. I want to get back in the drug business. Well, because Willy Wonka's not paying the bills. Yep, I bet. I mean, if we if the paychecks aren't fat from Willy Wonka Candy Factory. Well, and I hate that movie anyway. And um. It oh, I creeps, love Willy Wonka. It creeps me out. Like you wouldn't believe. And then and then when when Johnny Depp became a part of it, nope. No, thank you. No. He can be so creepy. And so perhaps we should just be paying our employees more and then our drug problem would go down. I solved it. Done. Solved. I'm leaving. Done. 
Boutron told her he was only going to be a middleman, locating buyers and setting up purchases for Ibarra and Segura. Their crew supplied powder cocaine and could facilitate larger purchases. It was a lucrative, albeit illegal, side hustle, providing thousands of dollars in non-taxable income. And all Boutron had to do was help arrange some sales and then deliver the cocaine. Since Boutron was on parole, Angelica Fowler decided it was better if she carried the drugs. She also helped arrange sales. Stand by your man, Don. This is, this is no Tammy Wynette shit. Come on. In December of 2009, Boutron and Fowler, along with their baby daughter, made a sale to Ernesto Aliquin. Boutron drove to the parking lot of a strip mall at 47th Street and Kedzie Avenue, where he parked, got out, and walked down the alley to a garage. He returned a few minutes later with a sample of cocaine, which Fowler put in her purse. With the sample in hand, they met Ernesto Aliquin at a public park. After approving the sample, Aliquin gave Fowler a bag with $5,600. Fowler separated out their share of $600 while Boutron drove back to the strip mall. When the two returned, Ibarra and Segura were parked and waiting for them in a Ford F-150. Fuller noticed a La Santa Muerte sticker in the back window, the Saint of Death. As Boutron got out to deliver the money, someone Fuller hadn't seen before emerged from the F-150. The man was Roberto Cerda, Ibarra's watchdog. He intensely scanned the parking lot and kept guard while Boutron completed the exchange with Ibarra and Segura. The transaction went without issue. Boutron called Aliquin afterward and delivered the cocaine back to the park where the two initially met, 5000 bucks worth of cocaine for which he made $600, and on Bring Your Kid to Work Day, no less. See, he loves his children. Aliquin became a relatively consistent buyer for the couple, making monthly pickups through May of 2010. But on at least one occasion in March, Aliquin underpaid for the cocaine. It's the kind of thing that goes against your permanent record in this type of organization. But March was a busy month for the Ibarra crew. Fowler, Boutron, and Aliquin were hardly their only clients. Crack and cocaine dealer Renoris Oki McDonald met Ibarra, introduced to him as Migo, in March of 2010 at 66th Street and Albany Avenue, the home of his friends Stephen and Tyrese Bailey. The Bailey brothers were low-level dealers and buyers who introduced Ibarra as a potential new supplier for McDonald. Ibarra wasn't alone. There was a quiet man with him who never spoke and seemed to have eyes everywhere. McDonald quickly cooked up a sample of Ibarra's cocaine, but he wasn't impressed by the quality and declined to make a purchase. He told Ibarra, I'm willing to do business with you in the future, but you're going to have to get me something better than this. Four days later, Renoris Oki McDonald met Ibarra and his watchdog, Roberto Cerda, at the Bailey Brothers' house. McDonald purchased $5,000 worth of cocaine. During the exchange, Cerda never said a word. He just stood back and watched. Why doesn't he talk? McDonald asked Ibarra. He's not here to talk, said Ibarra, pointing his hand like a gun, making a shooting action. When it was all said and done... Ibarra gave McDonald two phone numbers he could use to contact him. 
And if any of this bothered McDonald, it didn't stop him from becoming a regular buyer from Ibarra and his crew, a crew that included Raul Segura, Roberto Cerda, and Ibarra's cousin, Augustin Agui Toscano. After just a few weeks of purchases on April 17th, Ibarra switched up the process suddenly, telling McDonald he would now require one day advance notice and a specified quantity. The transfer would take place the following day at a location of Ibarra's choosing. Later that same night, the Bailey brothers told McDonald they wanted to buy from Ibarra too because his cocaine was better than what they could get. Okay, so hang on a second. I'm trying, yep. to, I'm trying to put this all together. So Oki didn't like the original cocaine. He's the one that said, bring me back better stuff. Bring me some better okay, shit. cool. Who are the Bailey brothers again? They the just, Bailey they brothers just the house? They or they, the or house, they're the yep. Or they're the main supplier? No, they had the house and they introduced Oki. Ah, yes. To okay. Ibarra. Right. My favorite guy, the watchdog. He doesn't say a word. I like that guy. On April 20th, but I think... McDonald was making big, bigger purchases than, than the Bailey brothers, so he sort of quickly advanced beyond their access to Ibarra. Sure, sure. So on April 20th, McDonald explained the new purchasing rules with Ibarra to Stephen Bailey. But when Bailey went to make a purchase, Ibarra refused to sell to him because he was with too many people. Stephen Bailey was pressing his luck with Ibarra. Still, he persisted. On April 22nd, the Bailey brothers asked McDonald if he could help them get cocaine from Ibarra. But evidently, McDonald was also having issues making a purchase from Ibarra at this time. A few hours after that, Stephen Bailey told McDonald that his cousin, Crawford Davis, could take Stephen and Tyrese to Ibarra. Neither of the Bailey brothers had a license, so their cousin, Crawford Davis, often worked as their driver. Stephen never had a license, and Tyrese's was suspended for unpaid child support. Can we sidebar on that quick? Because I just feel like suspending somebody's license because they owe money does not help them earn money to pay back what they owe. I just, it seems counterintuitive. Is Tyrese working at the Willy Wonka factory or is he just doing bad shit? I don't know. So, I mean. I'm assuming it's, it's mostly bad shit, but his license wasn't suspended for bad shit. He just isn't paying. Anyways, I just, I think it's counterintuitive. Somebody, if you want somebody to pay their fines, they got to get to work. I guess you live in Chicago. There's great public transit. Anyways. I, yes, I hear you. I'm still, two things. Every time you say Bailey Brothers, I think if it's a wonderful life. And I'm like, Bailey Brothers building alone. And so I think not I keep. those Bailey not, Brothers. Not those yeah. Bailey Brothers. But I, I keep thinking of that. And I think that I'm forgetting, you know, then I'm like, Bailey Brothers, not George Bailey. Well, they live but in who a. Are, but who are Stephen and Tyrese again? They're the Bailey Brothers. Ah, okay. Who well, introduced Oki McDonald to Ibarra. Okay, not George. Okay. So McDonald tells the Bailey brothers, let me know when you get the cocaine and I'll cook it up for you. The brothers did not know how to cook it up. McDonald never heard from Stephen or Tyrese Bailey again. At approximately 9.30 p.m. on April 22nd, police were alerted to a stolen and abandoned Pontiac Grand Prix on the 2300 block of West 36th Street in the McKinley Park neighborhood. When officers came upon the car, they discovered the body of Stephen Bailey in the back seat. Bailey's hands were tied behind his back with rope. His face and head were a battered mess. It appeared he was beaten to death while bound. And the carnage didn't stop in the back seat. 
Two more bodies were found, awkwardly crumpled together in the trunk, hands bound behind their backs, heads beaten to bloody, bruised pulps. Stephen Bailey, age 25, his brother Tyrese Bailey, age 23, and their cousin Crawford Davis, also age 23, were declared dead on scene. A coroner later confirmed blunt force trauma as the cause of death. The three young men were robbed and executed. Remember that time that I said I liked the guy who didn't say anything? I feel like he did something. I, I'm not sure that I like him anymore. We're going to find out. Okay. He's not a nice guy. Okay. Yeah, silence does not make people nice. I, I always do that. I always yeah. like, oh, that guy sounds cool. Guy and, then I, and then I look like an asshole later on. I'm like, ugh, I should really, I really need to keep my opinions to myself. Detectives Daniel Gorman and John Halloran were assigned to the case. They were able to track down Oki McDonald within hours. McDonald told the detectives everything he knew about Ibarra and his crew. He identified Ibarra and Serta in a photo lineup, as well as the truck with the La Santa Muerte sticker. Additionally, McDonald gave them the phone numbers he had for Ibarra. Those numbers were registered to Sonia Ibarra at the residence of 4521 South Troy. And that's where Arturo Ibarra lived. I feel like uh, Oki doesn't know how this works. Yeah, he, he rolled quick. His, his buddies were dead. <laughs> right. he's, he's like, holy he's shit. Like, no, here's his number. This is where his mom lives. Hi. I yeah. mean, just like, I, you know, I'm, I'm good. But yeah. I feel like that's not going to end well. Yeah. Usually doesn't go well for people who do that. The investigation picked up steam. It turns out Ibarra and his crew had actually been on police radar since late 2009 when Victorino Chavez, 43, was found dead inside his blue Kia Sportage after it crashed into the El Milagro Tortilla Factory in Brighton Park. He was shot twice. In the weeks following that murder, police investigators focused on Ibarra after speaking with a witness who watched a white SUV come flying out of an alley and slam into Chavez's Kia Sportage just after hearing the pop, pop, pop of gunshots. Arturo Ibarra drove a white GMC Yukon. Police confirmed through phone records that Chavez had a conversation just before he died with someone whose phone was using the cell tower near Ibarra's home. Returning to the present timeline. Because that was all, that was that all, was, that's what kind of put him on the radar. Correct. Right? That was back in 09. So present timeline, it's April 23rd, 2010. One day after the gruesome triple homicide discovery, a team of eight police are set up conducting surveillance at Ibarra's home on 4521 South Troy. Officers observe three men leave the home, get into a car and drive off. Police aren't far behind initiating a traffic stop after witnessing erratic lane changes and speeding. The traffic stop blows by without incident. Officers confirm the identities of the three men as Arturo Ibarra, Raul Segura, and Roberto Serta and let them go. It's kind of like a, hey, hi, we're here. Or you were driving erratically and... They were watching them. They could have yeah, let him right. go. It's not that big oh, of a deal. Right. You know, I didn't, maybe hoping to get him with something. For once, I didn't like, overthink something. Yeah. For once. Like, you know, oh, I'm hey. like, what's the big deal let about that? Let me know we're like, here. Yeah, okay. As Chicago police pressed on with their investigation, so too did Ibarra and his crew continue with their work. In spite of being directly under police radar, Ibarra and company not only continued making big-time drug deals, the Santa Muerte death crew 
extended their brutal killing streak. After just a handful of sales, Fuller and Boutron were making more money in a few weeks selling cocaine than either could make in months at a regular job. Boutron's first transaction as a middleman yielded him $600 in just a few hours, more than he was earning in a 40-hour work week at the candy shop making poverty wages. These smaller crews, like the Bailey Brothers, Fuller, Boutron, Aliquin, and Oki McDonald, were buying as much as $5,000 of cocaine each time. Now, I just really needed to know, how much cocaine does that buy? Here's what I found. A kilogram of cocaine, which is 1,000 grams or 2.2 pounds. I think the cool kids call it a kilo. Has a value of a pro- I'm not cool. Has a value of approximately $20,000. That price will vary drastically from state to state and the further away you get from the southern border. With that in mind, we can reasonably conclude these small-time dealers were purchasing a quarter kilo or a little over a half a pound. That's about 230 grams of cocaine. Now, I have no idea if they can yield more than that by cutting it or cooking it or whatever has to happen to get this cocaine to the retail level, but 230 grams of cocaine at an average price of 100 bucks a gram is $23,000 a brick. So, even if they were picking up less than that, say one-eighth of a kilo, which is 115 grams, that's still $15,000, a $10,000 profit. And we'll mark that as the first time it's been acceptable to do math on Midwest murder. It only took 420 to make us do it. I would... I would agree with that. I would agree with that. And and it's... it's Those numbers, I had to know. And it's it's horrific. Because they don't put that in the reports. They're like, oh yeah, $5,000 worth of... They're well, buying no, this much. It's they? not there. It's, it's fascinating. They? Because everybody would quit Willy Wonka and start, you know, like, oh, dealing really? drugs. Right? I mean, hmm? which then of course would drive... I paid attention sometimes in business school, but they don't call it business school anymore. They call it college. But uh, <laughs> like... Like that would, that would drive down, like it's supply and demand, right? The more people that sell it, the less it, it's so, it's, it's a weird world. On May 17th, Boutron set up a killer $1,000 commission deal for Aliquin and another guy named Hector Little Smurf Romero. Nicknames, right? At 9 p.m. that night, when it was deal time, Boutron told Fuller, you're staying home. She normally came with him on every deal. Boutron got into a white car and drove off. It was the last time Angelica Fowler saw Boutron alive. Just after sunrise on May 18th, Orville Broche arrived to work at AccuLabs on 48th Place and Whipple Street. When he got out of his car, a person driving by stopped and told Orville, you should call 911 because I think there's a dead guy in that car. The man pointed at a white four-door Toyota Avalon and drove off. Orville Broche cautiously approached the vehicle and noticed a body through steamed-up windows. He ran inside and called 911. Police found two unidentified bodies covered in blood and bullet holes, bound with duct tape and zip ties. The bodies were seated in the back of the car. It was Hector Little Smurf Romero and Ernesto Aliquin. Romero was slumped over in Aliquin's lap. He had 500 bucks in his pocket. The last body discovered at this monstrous crime scene was carelessly stuffed into the trunk of the car 
It was Andres Boutron. He died of positional asphyxia. Before the victim's bodies were removed from the car, it was towed to the medical examiner's office. Firearms evidence, including four Winchester 40 caliber Smith & Wesson cartridge case- casings, an FOA 25 caliber automatic cartridge case, and a live R&P 40 caliber Smith & Wesson bullet were later recovered from the car in addition to a number of biological samples. Autopsies were conducted the same day and additional ballistics materials were recovered from the bodies of Romero and Aliquin. Further investigation identified exterior security cameras in proximity to the crime scene location, security footage identifying a grand marquee and a white SUV was found. A lot transpired over the course of the next several days. On May 18th, as investigators worked to identify the bodies, Detective William Brogan was on stakeout near Arturo Ibarra's house in an undercover car. Roberto Serta drove up in a black Mercury Grand Marquis, walked to the front door. It cracked open. Serta was handed something. He got back in his vehicle, drove to the alley behind Ibarra's house, and parked. Completely oblivious of Detective Brogan's watchful eye, Serta got out of his vehicle and used a garage door opener to get inside. He emerged moments later with a large blanket shrouded over his arms. He placed something, a package, with that blanket in the trunk of his car and left the scene. Detective Brogan radioed the surveillance team and police pulled over the Grand Marquis not far from Ibarra's house. Officers carefully approached the car from both sides, noting window decals on the left and right. It was the saint of death, La Santa Muerte, with the words, Fear me, beneath her. Serta was arrested for driving without a license. He was wearing a black Santa Muerte t-shirt when he was arrested. A passenger, one Blanco Dongu, was also taken into custody. Serta admitted to ownership of two weapons found in the trunk of his car, a 12-gauge sawed-off shotgun and 22 caliber rifle. Police also found zip ties and a pair of gloves under the floor mat. Dude, like, be smarter than that. It's sloppy. It's a little sloppy. sloppy. Yep, a little sloppy. And again, when we do that, it's like, don't do it that way. It always feels like that. And I just want to point out we're not encouraging it. No. Okay. The pair was separately taken to the station and questioned. Serta told police the house that he went to was that of Arturo Abara, and that Abara let him store the weapons inside the garage. He also told officers Dongu had no idea about anything that was going on. Police were given consent to search their home, although Dongu would later allege she was coerced into signing search consent under threat of having her children taken away. Investigators found a number of interesting things at the residence of Roberto Serta and Blanco Dongu, including $4,000 in cash, some cannabis, flex ties, a 40 caliber semi-automatic Ruger handgun, and a shrine to La Santa Morte. The shrine was a small statue of the Grim Reaper-like figure. At her feet, cigarettes, money, chocolates, and alcohol. Serta admitted the gun was his, purchased for home protection. The conversations with Serta were not recorded, even though recording equipment was readily available. Meanwhile, while that's happening, Ibarra, who has an active warrant for his arrest, is still being surveilled as Serta is at the station. At 4.50 p.m., 
Police identified Ibarra's gray Dodge Ram pickup speeding and pulled him over. Multiple police officers respond to support the action. Officers approach the pickup truck with weapons drawn. They command Ibarra to exit the vehicle. He complies, and Ibarra is arrested without incident. Police found 12 bundles of rubber-banded cash in the truck, totaling $7,155. On Ibarra's person, wrapped in a picture of La Santa Morte, another $4,845. And don't worry, nobody has to do the math. It's 12000 bucks. The next day, on May 19th, Angelica Fuller went to police because she was afraid for Andres Boutron after not having heard from him for several days. She was tragically informed Boutron was found dead in the trunk of a car. Later that evening, Fuller agreed to meet with detectives John Halloran and Dan Gorman. When they met her, Angelica Fuller was trembling, fidgety, and afraid not just for her life, but also for the lives of her children. Under risk of her own life, she told detectives, Turo did this. He killed Andres. She relayed a lot of information to the detectives, but was too afraid to give a recorded or written statement. Although Arturo Ibarra was brought in for the traffic warrant, police weren't able to keep him at the station for long, and he wasn't interested in answering any of their questions. They didn't have anything else on him. He was released. Roberto Cerda, on the other hand, Ibarra's presumed muscle, watchdog, and executioner, was kept on weapons charges pending further investigation. Cerda would never see the light of day again as a free man. In a quiet neighborhood of well-kept homes, not far from Midway Airport on 6100 South Kildare Avenue, one resident was alerted by a knock on their door. It was a late September evening, just past 9 p.m. Imagine their surprise to discover a pair of wide-eyed, terrified children, ages three and six. Through a sobbing mask of tears, the older child relayed a story far too horrific for such young eyes. The children arrived at a house on Kildare Avenue with their father, 25-year-old Noel Cazares. When the kids entered the garage with their father, they immediately saw three men being held hostage at gunpoint. Their mouths gagged, hands and feet bound with duct tape. Cazares was ordered to the ground. He too was gagged and tied. Then, as the children watched, all four men were executed with a single bullet to the head. Oh, those poor babies. The other men were later identified as Luis Santalan and Roberto Rivera, both age 30, and Alonzo Pina Valerio, 32. Allegedly, a cocaine deal worth tens of thousands was supposed to go down. Instead, the four men were ruthlessly murdered and robbed. It's a wonder the children's lives were spared. Also a wonder, this is the third hit. A quadruple murder and two triple homicides by the Santa Muerte crew while they've been, air quotes, under surveillance. I'm not sure if that says more about the crew or the police. And while I make no implication whatsoever that this happened, I could not help but ask myself the question, was this allowed to happen? All these victims are low-level dealers with rap sheets 
And if investigators believed Ibarra could lead them higher up the cocaine dealer hierarchy, did it really matter to police if that meant some low-level career criminals died along the way? No women or children or, quote, innocent people were being killed by the Santa Muerte crew. I think I think when when someone is doing you know quote bad shit right they're they're dealing drugs it's like oh there's another drug dealer off the street right but we don't look at why they're dealing we don't look at what's brought them there and and I think you said it best when you you said that you know we we dehumanize them right? to a degree they're still they're still people and even though they're you know doing quote unquote bad shit doesn't matter. The Santa Muerte crew, uh, they've accomplished a lot of murder while under investigation. I guess they're super sneaky cocaine ninjas. Or maybe the power of La Santa Muerte protected them. I don't know. But they got away with a lot. And obviously the children, they didn't know anybody's names and they could only describe what they saw. By February of 2011, the Santa Muerte crew was still on the loose. However, according to police... Arturo Abara, Raul Segura, and Augustin Toscano were under, quote, intense surveillance. At approximately 5 p.m., police watched as the three men entered an apartment building on the 5800 block of North Winthrop Avenue in the Edgewater neighborhood. It wasn't long before all hell broke loose. Inside the building, the drug dealer hit crew had arranged a deal alleged to be worth in excess of $50,000 for two to three kilos of high-quality cocaine. So I feel, As, like, I feel like high-quality cocaine, it, forgive me for being ignorant here, but that would be, you know, less cut stuff, right? I, like, maybe? I, I'm, I'm guessing. Okay. You know, like, what, like back when Oki McDonald cooked some up and right. like, tried it is, and was like, yeah, this, this is isn't bullshit. very good. You mix so, this with flour, it's not very good? Yeah. Yeah. As part of their ploy... Ibarra's crew wrapped Swiffer pads to look like bricks of cocaine. The three men meeting the Santa Muerte crew never saw the ambush coming. It was quick, violent, and savage. Segura held the men at gunpoint and ordered them to take their belts off. Luis Leva Garcia begged for his life as Ibarra tied his hands behind his back with his own belt. Please, I have children, said Garcia. Shut the fuck up, replied Segura, still holding him at gunpoint. Luis Leva Garcia would find no mercy from these worshippers of La Santa Muerte. Garcia was still begging for his life as he watched Augustin Toscano grab Joel Diaz by the hair, yank his head back, and slice his throat open, spilling blood onto the floor. He did the same to Ramiro Mendoza. Toscano slit each man's throat, one by one, and the crew fled, believing to have left behind no survivors. Luis Leva Garcia distinctly remembers the gurgling sounds like that of a slaughtered dying animal coming from the bodies next to him. It was the same sound coming out of his own throat, blood pumped from the open wound in his neck. The rapid blood loss quickly flowed down Garcia's chest as he lurched to his feet. Struggling to survive, hands still bound behind his back, Garcia incredibly managed to stagger into a neighboring apartment door. His desperate attempts to scream produced only a gurgle as he kicked at the door. A shocked man answered to find the mangled, bloodied Leva Garcia 
he immediately dialed 911. I feel like shocked is not the right word. Like if I see this dude with his, you know, throat hanging open. It is like way shocked beyond is, that. Shocked is not quite the word. Like, whoa, dude, you're having a bad day. Like, let's, let's, we should fix this. At 5.30 p.m., police had no idea what happened on the inside as they watched Ibarra with a big smile on his face lead Segura and Toscano from the building. But the emergency call came just minutes later. At 5.35 p.m., police initiated a traffic stop of Ibarra's Dodge Ram on Broadway and Thorndale Avenue. Officers slowly approached. Get out of the vehicle now! Bam, bam, bam! The crew opened fire in response to police commands. An officer went down, shot in the leg. The Dodge Ram sped off down the street, smashing into parked cars, jumping a curve, driving on the sidewalk to avoid the cops. The chase went careening around the corner onto Denon Avenue, slamming into vehicles. The clash of metal and gunfire rang through the air. Ibarra swerved again. This time, he couldn't maintain control of the truck, and he struck a utility box. When police approached the vehicle with their weapons drawn, Ibarra raised his gun. An officer opened fire and fatally shot Arturo Ibarra in the head. Segura and Toscano offered no resistance. They were arrested and taken into custody. Inside the truck, officers found two guns, a bloody knife with a six-inch blade, and six bundles of cash. The savage killing spree of the Santa Muerte death crew was finally at its end, culminating in the death of their alleged ringleader, Arturo Ibarra. In just under two years, the Santa Muerte death crew killed 11 people, nearly 12, all while under investigation and while selling kilo after kilo of cocaine. It wouldn't be until 2017 for the first of them, Roberto Serta, to finally face trial. The investigation was long and massive. Evidence gathered included phone records that were used to pinpoint timelines as well as the whereabouts of victims and killers. Security footage from various locations was used in conjunction with expert testimony to determine vehicles very similar to those of the accused were at or near the murder scenes. The Santa Muerte stickers in the back of Ibarra's and Serta's windows, in particular, were used to identify those vehicles on camera. Once the crew was behind bars, more witnesses came forward, including Blanco Dangu, she was the wife of Roberto Serta, and the niece of Raul Segura. Other witnesses included Angelica Fuller, Oki McDonald, and others. Forensic scientist John Flaskamp confirmed the Ruger model T-94 found at Serta's home was the weapon used to murder Ernesto Aliquin and Hector Little Smurf Romero. Additionally, DNA from Segura and Ibarra was also found on Aliquin's sweatpants, as well as the jacket taken from Serta's truck, a jacket that tested positive for primer gunshot residue. In May of 2017, almost six years to the day of the triple homicide that included Butron Aliquin and Romero, Roberto Serta was found guilty of murder. Six years later? Six years to the day. It took a long time for them to get the trial. 
Roberto Cerda was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Ernesto Aliquin is survived by five children. At the time Cerda's trial ended, one of Aliquin's sons was on the verge of graduating from the Chicago Police Academy. And I think this is this is where I think we have, right? It, you know, there was a collective, oh, right? And it's because so many times the way that, again, if you're doing bad shit, you're being arrested, whatever, then ah, whatever, you'll take care of yourselves. That's not that's not how this works, you know. And and I, still, people. It would be another four years before Raúl Segura Rodriguez stood trial. Luis Leva Garcia was the state's was the, was the state prosecutor's key witness. He spoke hoarsely, often using his hand to cover the hole in his throat. Defense attorneys tried desperately to undermine his credibility since he was after all just a drug dealer and far from a saint. The defense called him a prosecutor's puppet who was willing to sign off on any story the state wanted just so long as it kept him out of jail and not deported. It wasn't enough to convince the jury of any form of innocence. And in October of 2021, Raul Segura was found guilty on several counts of first-degree murder for the killings at the Edgewater Apartments, in addition to a number of lesser charges. Do we know? Do we know when when he was arrested? Was he arrested right after that? I mean, because Se- Segura was arrested right when Abara was killed, right there in February 2011. Okay. So I, I think I've made it pretty clear I'm no attorney. But isn't that uh, one of our amendments, you know, right to a, a, right to a speedy, speedy trial? trial? Not in Chicago, baby. Well, but how does that work? I, I think, I think I mean, continuances like, I, I'm pretty and sure, evidence and, but, and right, but that's still But that's still how that works. I mean, if it takes too long, I, you can, they've got a pretty good fight for that. I, and I mean, I'm, good point. I'm also pretty sure, I mean, I, I could be wrong, but I'm quite certain that the amendments are like, ah, unless you're in Chicago, then you're, then you're fucked. I, I, I don't think that's how that works. No, it's not. But here we are. I mean, it was just last year he was found guilty. He has yet to be sentenced. And the trial of Augustin Toscano has yet to begin. What? what? Like, what? I. Yeah. But he was arrested, right? I. Yeah, they were arrested together, charged separately. It's likely he's going to be guilty, but... so. Most federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies in Illinois cite the violent crime associated with gang-related drug trafficking as the most serious criminal threat to the state. Many of these victims were considered family men by those who knew them. Collectively, more than a dozen children were left fatherless as a result of these murders. Most of these victims worked full-time jobs. They had birthday parties for their children and family gatherings. Co-workers at Windward Roofing and Construction were astonished by the double lives of Abara and Segura. The owner of the company claimed the two were hardworking, dedicated employees who earned sixty to $70,000 a year, putting in 50-plus hour work weeks. They were the first people he called for emergency weekend call-ins when extra work was needed, and they always showed up. Sonia Barra, Arturo's wife and mother of his three children, believed her husband had given up the criminal life many years ago after his first long prison stint. She said he spoiled the children with toys and often took them to the movies. 
There seems to be a belief in the Chicago intelligence community that Ibarra's orders and direction came down the chain of command from El Chapo himself. It was also suggested that Raul Segura, not Arturo Ibarra, was the true ringleader, and the other men conveniently attempted to pin the leadership role on Ibarra since he was dead. One final note. Some information I stumbled upon while researching the case. I wasn't even slightly looking for this stuff. It was by complete accident. One of the two detectives who was assigned to this case at the beginning, John Halloran, who is now retired, was investigated numerous times. Halloran came from a line of police, including detectives Michael Kill and Kenneth Boudreau, who worked under disgraced former commander John Burge. Burge and his command were charged with torturing hundreds of suspects. The Illinois Torture Inquiry and Relief Commission found credible evidence linking the men to the beatings, torture, and coercion of numerous suspects over the course of several decades. Halloran was named in three misconduct lawsuits that cost Chicago more than $7 million, including several reversed convictions. The Santa Muerte crew was also one of the first cases Officer Daniel Gorman worked on following his promotion to detective. Gorman has been accused or co-accused of misconduct allegations 33 times. So back to my ponderance of whether or not these guys watched this hit crew kill a bunch of drug dealers, were they thinking to themselves, you're making our jobs easier? I just don't know. I, again, I can't help but ask myself that question. If you, if you have a, uh, if, if you can form a committee and actually call it the Torture Inquiry and Relief Commission, I feel like you have a problem. I haven't even, I haven't even, I've never even heard of it. it sounds like a made up name, but that. That's a real thing. That's an issue. That's Hundreds an issue. Hundreds of suspect. Well, and we know by now how many well, and that just, that puts all your shit in jeopardy, right? Yes. So, so you've worked yes. so hard and maybe hopefully because that's, you're supposed to uphold the integrity of the badge. Right. And then, and then when you do that shit, it just, that's, that's where it's like, really? And and then you think you're better. Whatever. Well, we, we know just through this podcast and through numerous other things, how much the way that it, these interviews are conducted has changed mm-hmm. specifically because the number of times in which it is believed that people were coerced right. and it happens a lot. After 16 hours, we've seen it on a, on a bunch of cases and it's happened time and again. And these guys were at the, some of these guys were at the very forefront. This episode of Midwest Murder was written by Jonah Lanto and produced at the Good Talk Network Studios in Minot. Sources for this episode include appeals documents from the trial of Roberto Serta, Chicago Tribune articles by writers Megan Crapo, Jeremy Gorner, Jason Meisner, John Cass, and Stephen Schmadeke. CPDP.co, WGNTV.com story by Marcella Raymond, projects.chicagoreporter.com slash settlements, justice.gov, voxeu.org, quora.com forward slash how much is a kilo of coke? (laughs) I don't know why that's funny. That's really funny though. (laughs) It's a real source. UNODC.org, talkingdrugs.org slash report. Rand.org and the timeline from bestlifeonline.com forward slash 2010 hyphen events. 
And of course, you can support Midwest Murder by going to our merch shop at tpublic.com forward slash stores slash Midwest Murder. You can also find us at buymeacoffee.com slash Midwest Murder if you want to give us a little tip. And again, big shout out to a typical brewery and barrel works. Or our as partnership. I like to call them, a typical barrel works and brewery. Our partnership with them, name. Buried Alive Midwest Buried Murder Alive. Beer. Yeah. It's going to be available June 1st at our first outdoor show here. We love Atypical. Thanks again to them. Thanks again to all of you. And now it's time for the Q&A. For the Q&A. Thanks yeah. a lot, guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you.